0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode two of Fireside Chats. In today's episode, I talked to Roosevelt Group member and one of my dear friends, Louisa, about her two articles in the first edition of the 2022 2023 New Annals magazine. Louisa wrote about her recent semester abroad in Hong Kong, where she witnessed the city's political tensions with China firsthand. She also wrote about Vogue China and why you should be paying attention to it now and in the future. You can read Louisa's articles for yourself and our publication, which is now available in print or very soon on our website in PDF form. Be sure to check us out at roosevelt-group.org and our socials at The Roosevelt Group on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. I learned so much speaking with Louisa, and I hope you learned something too. Enjoy! Okay, hello everyone. Welcome to Fireside Chats, episode two. The Roosevelt Group Podcast. I'm here today with Louisa, one of our members and writers, and one of my dear friends here in St. Andrews. Hello, Louisa. Hello, Ward. So to get us started, will you tell us where you're from, what year you are at St. Andrews, what you study, and then I have a fun question, but I'll ask it after you answer those. Okay, great.
1: Um, I am from Dallas, Texas. I am a third year here at St. Andrews, and I study international relations.
0: Nice. Okay, my fun question is, what is your favorite shade of blue? Okay. Um, For this
1: episode, I'm actually going (laughs) to say Cerulean. Cerulean, okay. Because it's a Devil Wears Prada reference, and we're talking about a fashion magazine that I know as part of this episode. Um, Mm -hmm. I actually don't even know what Cerulean looks like, but... I thought it'd be fitting. My actual favorite color is probably pink.
0: Okay. Yeah, that's perfect for today, (laughs) for Valentine's Day. Yeah, happy Valentine's (sighs) Day. Happy Valentine's Day. Um, Okay, yeah, I love Cerulean. I think my favorite shade of blue is like periwinkle. Mm. I love a little periwinkle moment. (laughs) Um, Okay. So for our new Annals publication, you wrote two articles. One is titled Student in a Silenced City, and the other is titled Why You Should Follow Vogue, Vogue China. Um, and you can tell from the titles that they have two very different tones. And I something I really loved about both of these was that you can hear your voice come through so much in the Vogue one, and then the other one is very, like, official and serious, but it's, like, two different writing styles. I don't know. I just really appreciated it. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah. And so I just, I learned so much reading them and I really enjoyed them in different ways. So the first article, Student in a Silent City, is about your semester which you just completed studying abroad in Hong Kong and what that was like to observe and live in a culture that's having its democracy basically robbed from it. Um, so you share in your article that Hong Kong exists under a quote, one country, two systems policy, which um, allowed it to maintain a capitalist society from 1997, when British rule ended to 2047. Um, But in recent years, it's become increasingly undemocratic. Um, So how much British influence, this is something I'm wondering, did you observe as still being visible in Hong Kong while you were there? I think that
1: the, the foundation of the city still has a lot of British elements. Quite literally, like, the street names are all English, and a lot of them are th- names like Queen Victoria or um, Wellington or mm-hmm. names like that. Um, and just kind of the, a lot of the, I don't know, just the fact that it's a capitalist, a big capitalist city, like an international hub. Um, it definitely is a global city and it has those British elements, but I saw fewer and fewer of those, and maybe it's just because I also, when I see them, they don't stand out to me because they're wa- what I already know, being mm-hmm. in the U.S. and, like, in the U.K., so that they didn't shout out at me as much as the Chinese elements did because mm-hmm. um, it definitely is a, is a very Chinese city. And, yes, you have some signs in English, but you also have a lot of things shouting at you and characters that you don't understand. Um, yeah. And the vast majority of the population is Asian and not British, even though there is a big um, like expat community. But um, would you say most people spoke English? That's the thing. Everyone did speak English, and I never had a problem with with being understood. Um, everyone spoke English at least to the extent that in a restaurant, in an appointment, in anything, you could you could get by.
0: Mm-hmm. What was the um, what's the population
1: of Hong Kong? It's huge. I actually don't know the numbers. I'm pretty bad with numbers, to be honest. Um, I think it's tens or hundreds of millions of people, um, and you can it just never ended. It's crazy because it's such a small city,
0: but it just went on and on and on as far as you could see. Google says it's 7.413 million as of 2021. I said tens or hundreds of millions. So this is why I'm bad <laughs> at numbers. Tens of <laughs> hundreds of millions. <laughs> Compared to 1997, it was 6.489. So it's increased by a million mm. since 1997. Um, okay, yeah. So to get into kind of like the political situation, relationship with respect to China, um, this is from the article that you cite as your source for your, what you've written. Mm-hmm. Um It says, Hong Kong is allowed to forge external relations in certain areas, including trade, communications, tourism, and culture. But Beijing maintains control over the region's diplomacy and defense. And um, so with this relationship to China, Hong Kong is supposed to have freedom of the press, expression, assembly, and religion, as well as protections under international law. Is there anywhere else that you know of that has this relationship with China? One in which they're
1: supposed to have all of these freedoms? Yeah. Um, I actually don't know. I don't think that China has as much of... Not since Taiwan and China are separate. I don't think that they have much of a hold on what Taiwan can publish. I know for a fact, though, that all these freedoms that you listed aren't actually that... They're applying less and less, and they're less and less real in Mm -hmm. Hong Kong. And that's something that I definitely talked about is... They may say they have freedom of the press and all these things, but they're shutting down newspapers that, that have expressed anti-Beijing or pro, um,
0: like independence mm-hmm. sentiment. So. Yeah. So, how much historical context knowledge did you have going into your semester there?
1: I didn't have much. Um, I knew that there had been protests in the past few years, um, and I'd known that it used to be a British colony, and that. Now it was, I knew about the one country, two systems kind of aspect Mm -hmm. um, and the the layout since the handover. At the same time, though, I did not know the extent of the protests and also I didn't know anything about how the city functioned and was governed for the vast majority of its history. Mm -hmm. Um, And to be honest, especially when I was in the U.S. as a high school student, I didn't really know that much of the difference between Hong Kong and China. Um, Yeah. They seemed mildly different, but I wouldn't have no to tell you what they were. But while I was there, I took this really incredible class called Hong Kong Politics, and Mm -hmm. it went through the entire political history of the city. And um, it's actually, it was the last of its kind, I think, to be taught in the city, which really goes to show how they're kind of trying to change the narratives in the way of talking about both colonial history and the recent protests.
0: Yeah, yeah, and you write in your article that you're professors was this for the politics class encourage you to write quote sensitive papers with an alias yes so
1: my my lecturer for that class was really inspirational because he just was completely fearless mm-hmm. and he would very only he would very like he would barely cover up the fact that he was very pro-democracy which I found he did it in a really hilarious way, but at the same time, everyone while everyone was laughing, I think everyone in the same in the room was like, "Wow, this mm-hmm. is really impressive that he actually has the guts to to say that he was at these protests and thinking this and doing that." Um, my tutors, on the other hand, for those classes, those were the ones that said, um, "You know, hey, you should probably for this class write with an
0: alias." Okay. Did everybody write sensitive papers?
1: Mm, they, Did you I mean, write one? I wrote. I didn't know what con- constituted sensitive papers, especially in the historical aspect. Because one of my papers I wrote was about civil society in Hong Kong from the sixties to the eighties, and um, the ability for people to to join civil society groups like church groups or you know democratic groups or um, pro teachers union groups, because all of those groups now kind of have to be sanctioned by Beijing and they all have to be made through the state because there's there are people are less and less allowed to, there's more and more cases where they shut down those civil society groups today and mm-hmm. so I didn't know what it would whether, how they felt about those groups like the history of those groups in the 60s, the 80s and like the early 2000s so I mm-hmm. went ahead and wrote it with an alias just okay. to be safe.
0: What are civil society groups? Those are just, um Kind
1: Those are the, it kind of is the bridge between the public sector and like business and I guess business is private. Private sector, business, public sector, government, and in the middle you just have people who mm-hmm. are joining like um, church groups or lawyers associations or teachers associations. and Like,
0: like kind of like labor unions? Yeah, labor okay. unions would be a civil society group. Gotcha. But they're for all different kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so you're saying that Beijing is trying to shut down these groups?
1: Yes. and if Or if not shut, shut them down, then have them associated with Beijing. For example, right next to where I lived in Hong Kong, there's this building called the Liaison Office, mm-hmm. which is kind of this very eerie-looking building. Not eerie, because when I first saw it, I was like, oh, that's a pretty building. But once I learned what it actually was for, then I found it kind of eerie because it's this like, thin t- tower with this huge kind of eyeball or orb-shaped top, um, and it is basically how Beijing unofficially kind of can control Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm making it sound as if it's from, like, a 1984 novel. But, yeah.
0: Um, <laughs> I'm reading that right now. <laughs> I'm like, this 1984. Like, like, Your whole yeah, article is, like, much, 1984.
1: No, that's the thing, is it really much felt like the Big Brother is watching. From yeah. my roof, I saw the orb of this office. And mm-hmm. what they do is they, if you, for example, wanted to join a civil society group, a lot of this office now um, backs and, like, financially supports a lot of those groups. And, for example, like, a lot of the political parties are financed by the liaison office mm-hmm. and like the ones that are pro-Beijing because there's still kind of, I guess kind of a quasi puppet government in Hong Kong. That is, I guess you could argue for or against because there is a government in Hong Kong that is kind of independent of China, but all of the people that are elected to the government have to be vetted by China. So it's kind of a puppet gar- like mm-hmm. government mm-hmm. Um, because the it's Hong Kong still on paper runs its own city the liaison office is kind of that's why it's unofficial is because they
0: that is the voice of Beijing in the city but so when you say that this like orb building it like controls the city what is it is it filming people is it watching people
1: no it's it's kind of like the seat of bureaucracy for Beijing in the in the city and it's okay it's just it's where um it's where like the propaganda and censorship for the city, like those offices are okay. in this building. And it's it's just offices for different sector, like state sectors that um, definitely can hold sway and influence mm-hmm. on the happenings in, of Hong Kong. But it's it's still kind of like a
0: bureaucratic office building type type yeah. space. Yeah. That's super 1984. I know. Whoa. <laughs> um, so what do you think? would have happened to you if you had written a paper that was like super anti-Beijing like did you ever hear of other students who have maybe like run-ins with the government because of what they had written?
1: Mm, No that's the thing is so much of people's self-censorship was fear and kind of word of mouth and rumor about what could happen Mm -hmm. and I was so like wary of pushing the limits of that because I didn't know how much was just like rumor and gossip, or and how much was real. For example, mm-hmm. they someone had told me, "Oh, you can't check out books on like s- politically contentious topics in the library because they'll ping the security." Yeah, and that, and I just kind of nodded along. I was like, "Okay, noted. I won't check out any." And then I was just was like. What does that mean? Do I, does that mean I can't check out any books on political science in the library? Why are those books still in the library if you can't check them out? And mm-hmm, also, true. what security? Like, the state, like, I mean, the, the city security or just the university security? Or, and, like, then I was wondering, who, how do you know? <laughs> and yeah. those are all these things. Like, I think that was the general theme is, like, people just said, don't do that. That could get you in trouble. But mm-hmm. you never actually knew which lines to cross. So would you say there's, like, a big culture of fear among people in Hong Kong um I think so and I think it's but also it's kind of pragmatic fear in a sense like it's not just like ah running around screaming it's all Mm -hmm. it's more like I want to have a for example a lot of the students that I talked to that were local students said that you know they're just putting their head down and working and not really um causing any fuss because at the end of the day, they're trying to get overseas jobs and to get overseas jobs, they need to get, make good grades. And to make mm-hmm. good grades, they just need to work and not cause any trouble. And mm-hmm. um, that's all in efforts to kind of maybe escape the situation or just have better prospects down the line if Hong Kong is um, as like a economic powerhouse is in decline. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was less fear and more just like, okay, this is how it is and we're just going to play by its rules. Yeah,
0: so... When you say the students want to get jobs abroad, are these people who have grown up in Hong Kong? Mm, The ones that I talked to were actually Korean students, um, Mm -hmm. so I I don't know about... Yeah. Mm -hmm. Were most of your friends other people studying abroad? They were. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, So you said that one of your... Your professor for your Hong Kong politics class um, was leaving at the end of the semester... Do you think that was forced or voluntary for him to leave? And where was he going? Do you know? Mm, I think that he
1: hopefully was actually—I don't know if "hopefully" is the right word—but I think he had a big love for Hong Kong, and I think that he was still going to live in Hong Kong. He was originally from um, from Germany, from Berlin. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it was forced or voluntary, but what I do know is that he was the only um, professor that I had, or any of my other exchange students um, had that was so vocal about um, his beliefs and also about talking about protests. Like, for example, like, movies that are streamed in Hong Kong and, like, theaters now, if they have scenes of any protest in any part of the world, that scene has to be cut. And so mm. there's not a lot of rhetoric about protests, which is why the fact that he's even talking about protests, especially the ones in Hong Kong, was kind of like, whoa. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: I, so the... It was true that he was one of the only professors that was still doing that. So that maybe points to the fact that someone was like, hey, you know, maybe you shouldn't. Or maybe that's what he thought. Maybe he realized that, you know, this is getting less and less less safe of something to talk about.
0: Yeah. So the whole cutting protest thing, do you think that's new since the protests in 2019?
1: I think think so. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm not sure.
0: Mm -hmm. Could you, like, when you were, because I remember seeing it, online and on social media, the huge protests that were happening, um, do you think that there's still, I don't, I don't want to say like communal trauma, but like, do you think that people are s- still have that like in their mind? If they do, people just don't talk about it, which is what I found kind
1: of not eerie, but it's definitely something i picked up on, mm-hmm. um, it's just it's kind of just like people are like all eyes ahead. Mm-hmm. Like and it's not something that was brought up between me and local students kind of ever. Um yeah. I definitely it was something that I thought about, but a lot of the um any evidence, like physical evidence of them has has is gone. Like He's there gone. used to be a statue of the Tiananmen, like commemorating the Tiananmen Square Massacre in mm-hmm. the university mm-hmm. and that disappeared one night, and now there's just benches. And, used to, and there's this, you know, this bulletin board called the Democracy Wall that I looked online, and it used to have all these flyers about all these kind of marches and things and, you know, ways to get involved with this or that mm-hmm. student, like, uh, c- committee. And now when I pass, it's still there, but it, it's just completely blank. Mm-hmm. Um, and you said it has security cameras watching security it, has security cameras, and when I first got
0: there, it was actually roped off with, like, caution tape. Whoa. That's interesting. That's really super eerie um do you think that like in the past in 2014 and I guess also in 2019 students were a big part of the opposition um and a big demographic of of protesting um do you think that the observation that's being done on students like with the cameras near the democracy wall and rumors about don't check out certain books from the library or don't write sensitive papers, do you think it's stricter on university students because they've played such a big role in the past I than, like, on av- your average citizen?
1: Definitely for both of those. Definitely the students were the largest demographic of people protesting f- for all the protests ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and students kind of always have been, actually. like yeah. The, like, 16 to 25 age group is always the one that has the most people there. I think maybe because they're like I feel like it's a big a whole bunch of things. You're you're less fearless. You're told that, you know, you can make an impact. Mm-hmm. You um don't have a job or anything tying you down and you want a better future for yourself and you have this whole future ahead of you. Mm-hmm. Um totally. definitely the they were the biggest, the largest um group of people in the protest. And I think that also probably is why there's such a heightened, like, lens on them is because people, like, students can enact, like, big change and they can they can bring about, like, you know, big protests and, like, they can organize really effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, not saying that other demographics can't, but I think there's, uh, as you get older, there'll always be a bit more, um, like, let's just sit back and not get involved.
0: Yeah, totally. And I think also, like, when you're... In as you said, the 16 to 25 age range, it's like when you become a conscious being. Yes. It's so weird. Like, I feel like, yeah, I have childhood memories, but like, I didn't really start thinking for myself until I was like 14. Exactly. And then I like developed my own identity from there. So I feel like that's the age when you like come into actually understanding how the world works and you are, as you said, like free enough to be like, wait, this shouldn't be this way. Like, let's change it. Exactly. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, so, okay, this is a cool question. Well, mm-hmm. not necessarily cool, oh, but something I m- am curious about. Were you ever afraid?
1: Um, I definitely was cautious and aware. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I would say I was afraid because I really tried not to do anything wrong. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like I, if I was afraid, it meant that I felt like I was guilty of something and I was really, like, on my best behavior. And I wouldn't talk about the things I'm talking about there. Mm-hmm. Um, and
0: if my friends called me, I would just be like, hey, yeah, it's great. Um, yeah. but um, great. So, like, when I would <laughs> FaceTime you and you were like, oh, yeah, it's so cool. If you, What do you think would have happened if you had, had said anything? Well, I
1: don't know because basically there's a lot of weird, like, I don't know not the right word, not semantics. But I always get those words confused. <laughs> but there's a lot of nitty-gritty uh-huh. within the um, new national security law that they passed in 2020 mm-hmm. about what is now legal and what isn't. And it's very, a lot of gray areas. And one of the things that they said was if that if they think that someone is guilty of a charge of foreign collusion or terrorism, or which could basically be like accepting funds for a democracy movement from abroad or terrorism could even be something that's like displaying anti-china sentiment or pro-hong kong independence sentiment Mm -hmm. i guess that would be sedition sedition is also one of the charges Mm -hmm. but if you if someone if the government suspects you of doing any of those things then they have the right to um access your personal data and your phone data and like they don't need a warrant because it's kind of a for the national security law cases, it's a bit more guilty until proven innocent. Um, and that just basically means that they, if they wanted to, they could access your phone data is mm-hmm. what people kind of seem to understand, and that's why I was definitely wary of
0: that. Um, but, yeah, yeah. So, like, when you would have conversations with your friends, like, I feel like St. Andrews is such a place where we talk about we talk about, like, fun stuff, but then we also talk about, like, very serious stuff just in, like, conversation with friends. Did you ever – I guess you just never had those kinds of conversations with people, right? Well, I'll tell you, the most interesting conversation that I never
1: had was the day of the protest in China in November. Like, when people were just getting fed up with the with the lockdown and there's oh, yeah. that instance of um, the apartment – burnt. like, there's a huge apartment in this um, – that – um, there was huge fire in this apartment, mm-hmm. and people couldn't get out because of the lockdown restrictions on the doors and stuff um, in mainland China. And so there was protests for the first like the biggest protest since the Tiananmen Square massacre, and that was all happening while I was in Hong Kong.
0: Whoa. And
1: so my friends and I had just got in our Starbucks and we were sitting around, and we were at this like picnic table, and there was some other woman sitting there like working on a computer, and our conversation went like this: It was like, "Hey, did you see the news?" Yeah, I saw the news. Like, it's crazy news. Yeah, I can't believe the news. It's wild. Whoa. And that was it. And that was all we were, that's all I said about the protest while I was there. Wow. That is
0: <laughs> wild. That is a very
1: interesting because conversation. Because we don't know
0: like if the phones are on, we don't know if mm-hmm. that
1: woman is who she is. That's yeah, she might work like, in the orb. Exactly. <laughs>
0: exactly. <laughs> she might be big brother. I know. <laughs> Seriously. Um okay. Is there anything else that I haven't asked you about, like this article topic that you want to talk about before we move on to Vogue China?
1: I think that's, I think that's kind of it. Okay. I do wonder how much I'll be able to go back to Hong Kong or China. Like sometimes I wonder like, am I actually significant or do they not care that I'm having tiny little opinions here and there about this or that mm-hmm. thing?
0: Yeah. And you're also not
1: like a native.
0: Yeah, exactly. So yeah. It's, it's interesting
1: whether like I'm just kind of, you know, f- feeling the flames of, of all this, like, ooh, what's going to happen? But Mm -hmm. it's actually not that big of a deal. That's something I definitely wondered. But you could never,
0: I couldn't really prove. Mm -hmm. Do you want to go back in the future to visit? I do.
1: And I definitely want to go to China. It's on my bucket list. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's definitely, I don't know, I wouldn't go anytime soon.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, a little complicated. Yeah. Um, Okay, so your second article is about Vogue China and how it's different from the other 26 Vogue nationalities because it's more culturally focused and less Western conformist. Um, And it also reflects the growth that China has undergone in recent decades. Um, And I thought it was really interesting in your article how you talk about how in the last few decades China has kind of burst forth with this market and desire for luxury goods that has driven like the, I don't know, need for them, um, which also like supported Vogue China. Um, And this is from an article about Vogue China's current chief. Um, It's on Vogue.com by Nicole Phelps. And the current chief of Vogue China, her name is Margaret Zhang. She's 27. Um, It was very impressive. And it says... This is a quote from Margaret. She says, I think Vogue China has an immense platform to communicate about those individuals, not only to the world, but to its own citizens. There's a huge opportunity to champion local talent in film, music, and the fine arts, in addition to fashion, and bring it to a global stage because it's such a recognizable brand and so trusted. So something I'm wondering is, like, with all of this kind of... um, observation of people in Hong Kong that we know also takes place in China how do you think Vogue China I mean are they only talking about like arts and fashion is there no political discourse I
1: don't think there is much political discourse that's happening I think that Vogue China gets to float above it um or at least not political discourse in the sense of talking about contentious topics they're they're they have a really wide breadth of things that they do talk about in the fashion world, arts world, entertainment world, and all that. Um, but, I mean, the big thing that that is, like, heating up with Hong Kong is that there's a lot of anti-China sentiment in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. And that's something that China has a problem with, and Vogue China is very pro-China sentiment, obviously.
0: So. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, this topic though, were you aware of Vogue China to the same extent as you now be- are before your semester in Hong Kong?
1: I was really taken with it. I definitely I followed it on Instagram, and I followed Margaret Zhang on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something I've had my eye on for for a few years because I love the Vogue magazines. And one, I remember one day like years ago, I went through. All the Instagrams of all the Vogue magazines, just to see what all the other the twenty six vogues are like and this and the Vogue China one stood out like it just burst out at me like it was mm-hmm. it really captured my attention because it was so original and so such like high production value mm-hmm. and so beautiful and ever since then, I've known that it's something that I wanted to look more into and also like get my hands on because you can't get a Vogue China magazine outside China like a print one really um mm-hmm. So that was one of the first things I did when I went to Hong Kong was get my Vogue China magazine.
0: Yeah. Were people, is it something people give a lot of attention to in Hong Kong? No, actually they hid the Vogue China magazines behind the Vogue Hong Kong
1: magazines. Oh, um, so there's Vogue Hong Kong yeah, too. Yeah, so it was a bit, Whoa. yeah, so there was a bit <laughs> political. Like one day I went to the, a, a different bookstore than I usually do and I asked, oh, where's the Vogue China? Like I saw it's in stock and they had looked look for it for like, 10 minutes before they found it like hidden behind all the other, like purpose, you know, Whoa. way in the back. Um, and all the other ones were displayed um, country to country. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of
0: politics that's wild. of Vogue. So, yeah, and you talk about like how official but like well produced Vogue China is. Were there differences in that level of production quality between Vogue Hong Kong and Vogue China?
1: Yeah, I felt bad because I didn't like the Vogue Hong Kong one as much, and I felt like I was a traitor to, to to the city when I prefer the Vogue China one. But it's, it's mainly just because, the high production value of Vogue China, is exists because it has a really high readership. Because like it has 16 million, digital, like, viewers and Mm -hmm. subscribers. Um, Whereas I guess Hong Kong is really only, that readership is really only in. Hong Kong. Yeah. And when you have that many readers, you have all these, like, um, all of the big luxury brand brands wanting their ad to have ad space to attract all of those, like, consumers. And that's where the money comes from, is from um, all of the ad, like, revenue streams. And
0: mm-hmm. Hong Kong just doesn't, doesn't get as much demand from, from the luxury market. Mm-hmm. And those, those luxury brands that fill the ad space, they're not necessarily Western ones right like Louis Vuitton Gucci no
1: it it is okay that's actually it's a good question because there's a lot of there's a lot more components in the Vogue China one with the ad space mm-hmm. than in the other places so basically the, it is a lot of those main brands because all those brands want to access the Chinese market and Vogue China is an incredible platform to do that through because it very much sifts through and mediates and tells readers what they should buy. And readers have a huge trust in Vogue China that's been built mm-hmm. up in the past, like, 18, 20 years um, since it has been founded because it just really gets its readers, and that's something that luxury brands themselves don't. Like, European luxury brands don't really get the Chinese market, but yeah. Vogue China does, and so it's kind of this, like, cultural translator between the two. Um, and, yeah, so these these brands also... The ad space in Vogue China. First of all, it's huge because it just all these European brands actually really want to those those ads. Mm-hmm. But also, it's notably Asian. Like you'll look yeah. at most other um, most other ad spaces are usually like from the photo shoots that were taken in the U.S. or from Monte Carlo or from like Chanel's mm-hmm. like London photo shoot, but. Most of the ads in China are featured Asian models and they also feature like distinctly Asian styles, and not just like yeah. Western styles. So it's it's a bit and also they definitely sh- like Margaret Zhang ha- um, saved some of that ad space for local designers, which is something that no other Vogue's really do is devote. Mm-hmm that, like, really high-grossing ad space at a discounted price to your own local designers, which I think is really interesting. Mm-hmm. That is really interesting.
0: Do you think that... Um, do you think that... Okay, yeah. I mean, okay, what we were talking before we started recording about Margaret Jing and, like, her education. And so she grew up in Sydney, right? Sydney, Australia. Yes. And she's the youngest person to ever be the chief editor of any of the Vogue's Um, and she's 27 and so yeah how do you think like if Vogue China has such a such a pro-China in the sense of like pro-Chinese culture and pro-Chinese designers and models and stuff how do you think that that can exist with her having not grown up in China and under like the Chinese education system. I think that's a good question. I think that
1: there's even for overseas Chinese there's so much pride in in Chinese culture. I don't know. I don't know how much of that has been reinforced by this education system. That they've implemented, like this national curriculum, that kind of heightens topics on like Chinese tradition and culture and instills a lot of national pride. I don't know how much that new education system is going to impact um, the next like generations of of overseas Chinese and mainland Chinese, um, because. But you do see a few instances where, since that education, like patriotic education campaign is what it's called, mm-hmm. took place. There's more, a bit more like nationalist sentiment, and we don't really know f- exactly if that's correlated. Um, if that's correlated, but with Margaret Zhang, I think that it's interesting because I, you don't really know what's what's causality or what's just coincidence. But she is more assertive and more um, kind of uses more political language than her predecessor Angelica Chung. Mm-hmm. Like I was, I was translating her edit- her like letters from the editor in... The issues that came out while I was in Hong Kong and they would have phrases like quote unquote break from the shackles of the Mm. like kind of western system and Mm -hmm. she was using it in talking about designers and artists and how they need to like have their own self expression and create a new artistic language but just that kind of like charged language quote unquote breaking from the shackles is something that you saw in the patriotic education campaign when they talk about the century of humiliation which was what China experienced, what China—the term that China has coined for their experiences from the 1840s to the 1940s—were basically they were getting effed over by imperialists, by the U.S., by mm-hmm. Europeans, by colonialism. And there is language now that's like we need to break from, not bend to the West and not cave to the West. And you see that in her in her letters to the editor, but also just in the in the insistence on having that Chinese style and that like infusing traditional Chinese um like aesthetics with modern Chinese aesthetics and just mm-hmm. the this futuristic but also like grounded in in this beautiful culture that is always present in all the Vogue China magazines. Um mm-hmm. I and mean, it's just like this motif that continues. I think it that's where I think that the pride comes from and that's where I see it the most is just in like the The optics and and I guess also the language of it Mm
0: -hmm. yeah definitely and it they say in the in I think you mentioned this in your article and in the one that I read about Margaret Zhang that China is probably in the future going to have a big or its own big luxury brand names that don't necessarily exist yet do you think that Vogue China, because of how big its readership is, has the power and ability to kind of create those brands? I think so. I think that
1: it's a process that in IR is in within the constructivist theory of mm-hmm. of framing things. What is, is the constructivist theory? One for of the those things of us that who don't do IR? one of the things that they talk about is. Um, The way in which, like, kind of the incumbent institution, um, the way in which they, the incumbent institution has these norms and they have this whole structure of who's in and who's out and who, um, and it's all, and it's a lot of like identity and all that kind of like identity norms, values, blah, 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 blah. blah. But one of the things they talk about is if you are, um, if you're trying to rise as a power, you're rising into the system that already exists the incumbent system you have to deal with mm-hmm. the incumbent powers and you're you only gain legitimacy in this system you can't just say oh i have legitimacy i am here um i am a powerful state and like i am a global power you have to that kind of has to be given to you from the powers that already are and have them say oh like we're the us and in the uk we'll we'll come to your fashion week will come to mm-hmm. all of your exhibitions cuz you have a burgeoning fashion like you know a fashion scene like things like that where they gain more legitimacy from they gain they have to gain legitimacy from the people that already have the power in the fashion world which is the UK and western Europe and the US mm-hmm. and one of the ways that they do that and just that you see that playing out is and the seeds i guess for maybe the future where um Chin- more there you see more chinese designers it's just like the ad space i think is really telling because you have all these like high fashion european brands that rule the school and like rule yeah. the whole fashion world and yet they have to bend to chinese ad space and they have they have this coveted ad space that they want and yearn and that is how they get to like the golden the golden the money bag. Like the Chinese consumers are the biggest um consumers of luxury. And so these European brands need the Chinese consumers and they need Vogue China and they're dependent on Vogue China. Mm -hmm. And there's this like kind of all of a sudden there's this switch dependency where Vogue China isn't doesn't need Louis Vuitton, it doesn't need Gucci, but Louis Vuitton and Gucci need Vogue China. And I think that we're gonna see more of that as time goes on. Like they're earning their status because all of a sudden like these big incumbent powers need them and they need mm-hmm. maybe they maybe in the next 10 15 years the like Louis Vuitton and Gucci and all the or you know Alexander Wang and all these Vera Wang whatever they will need to go to Shanghai Fashion Week and have a presence there because that's how because I just think that the the tides are turning and the roles are switching. Yeah, and definitely. And they're gaining legitimacy and
0: now they're actually giving, the ones giving legitimacy to these brands, uh-huh. which is really interesting. That's so interesting. Yeah. Wow. I am excited to see where that goes just as an observer. It's really cool. In the West. Um, so this is just like interesting question for me mm-hmm. to learn about. What was the street style like in Hong Kong? Okay, s- that, it's, it definitely jumped out at me um, because it
1: f- just was so different. Everyone was put together, um, and everyone had great style and fashion, and just, like, their outfits were coordinated. And just walking through the school, um, f- like, I, I definitely felt myself, like, dressing up a bit more, not just, like, wearing, like, nice trousers and a nice top, but, like, having a look. And having, like, Mm -hmm. style was Mm -hmm. definitely a thing. People had their look down. Um, Interesting. And I got to know, like, as time went on, like, oh, that girl, like, she has such a good look. Like, she wears all black, looks like she's, like, from Berlin, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Um, But also I noticed that no one wears old clothes. Or if they do, they don't look old. Everyone has new clothes. Okay. And new, everything was just really in and trendy. And I think there's just a lot more, like, a shop, get the newest Season stuff,
0: mm-hmm. culture. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting because I feel like in St. Andrews, for example, like
1: everyone wears old clothes. I yeah. went to buy a new shirt the other day, and I felt really—I didn't want p- anyone to see me in town because <laughs> I was buying a new shirt instead of getting one from the charity shop. And <laughs> I felt like I felt gross. That's <laughs> I'm like that's why it stuck out at me so much, is because in St. Andrews, it's such a wear old clothes yeah. culture. That yeah. like when I saw the wear new clothes culture, I'm like, this is really weird. Yeah, <laughs> all of a sudden.
0: That's super interesting. Yeah, it is definitely like a a thrifted like wear your thrifted grandpa sweater. Yes. And exactly. like you wear it to the library, wear it to the pub. Exactly. whereas when I was wearing that in
1: Hong Kong I just felt completely out of the yeah. Out of the fashion scene and like just like
0: sad. Yeah. <laughs> and that would you say extended from students through like the whole culture of the of the city? Mm. Definitely the youngest like
1: the young people were the most chic. Mm-hmm. Of course, as you get older, like,
0: people care less what they're wearing. Yeah. But naturally. Yeah. Did you travel anywhere else in that part of the world? I no, went to Japan. Okay. Oh, yeah, you did. You did? Yeah. Uh Tell me about that. Oh, it was great. It mm-hmm. was super fun. Um, did you meet your mom in Japan? I did. She she came
1: across the world, um, which was super, super <laughs> sweet of her. And it was you had this fun, like, mother-daughter trip. Yeah. It was lovely. Christmassy, um lots of like yummy cocktails and fun shopping and it was fun going from like student budget to all of a sudden like your mom is in town like (laughs) christmas shopping for the family (laughs) yeah it was it was great
0: oh i love that and then what did you do in the philippines that was with friends right yes that
1: was during like our school like reading week Mm -hmm. um we we went we went at the wrong time though because it was actually monsoon season and it was raining the no whole time. No way! And it was just a a lesson in to have better trip planning because our Airbnb was also in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> that that trip was actually a fail, which I think I guess made <laughs> Japan so much better because that trip <laughs> had just was disaster after disaster. How did you get to your Airbnb? Uh, we had to do a lot of. Like, taxis. Like, you couldn't walk anywhere, which is frustrating, because taxis are a lot harder to find when it's raining.
0: Yeah. It's raining the whole time. Yeah. That's happened to me before. Um, Last spring, when I went to Mallorca, our Airbnb was 30 minutes outside of the nearest city, and two and a half miles up a mountain from the nearest (laughs) small town. So, needless to say, we did a little bit of hitchhiking, but everyone was really friendly, and I felt safe doing it.
1: Hey, that's good. That's okay.
0: Yes. And we were a big group too, so I like wasn't worried. If I was alone, like you would not but catch yeah. me hitchhiking <laughs> in a foreign country. Yeah. No, it's a pain. <laughs> yeah. Um okay, is there anything else like you want to add about this topic that maybe we didn't get to? Hmm. I just
1: want everyone to follow Vogue China. That's definitely why I my title is like why you should follow Vogue China. Mm-hmm. I think that it is it's the software that soft power that China needs to kind of Mellow out its assertiveness in foreign policy, which I guess I talk yeah. we talk a lot about in in the international relations classes. But it's just it's cool because when you I just I really think that it's going to be fashion is going to be something you equate with China in in the years to come, and I'm mm-hmm. really interested to see like how Margaret Chang's um, role because she just started in 2019 and so she's still kind of hitting her groove, and I'm mm-hmm. interested mean, to see like how her how her voice changes and and like maybe catches wind in the West more because it's still something the West isn't really aware of. Um, yeah, like you, you associate like I don't know, you associate South Korea with music and entertainment, and Japan mm-hmm. with I guess like gaming and and mm, maybe literature. Um, and I think that people are going to start associating China with with fashion, mm-hmm. which yeah. is which is
0: really exciting. That's really interesting, and also I mean I feel like she'll probably. If this does, and it definitely seems like it is, like, lift off the ground and to the significance that we're we're kind of hoping that it does or anticipating Mm -hmm. that it does. I think she'll probably become, like, a world, a globally known figure in just, like, the fashion culture world in the same way that Anna Wintour is. I think so. You know? I really do. Anna Wintour is an icon.
1: Yeah. Like, this is... This is the highest grossing fashion magazine in the world right now, mm-hmm. and not enough people are
0: talking about it. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I mean, I didn't know about Vogue China. I mean, I'm sure I probably assumed subconsciously yeah, exactly. that there was a Vogue China, but right. I didn't realize, like, the influence that it had in kind of, like, culture and consumerism in China. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. Love it. Love. <laughs> um What is one thing that you want people to take away from your first article, Student in a Silent City?
1: I think that all of a sudden I came back from that experience, having such a renewed sense of the institutions, specifically the democratic institutions that we're used to and that we've grown up with are actually very slippery, and they can just slip away super Mm -hmm. easily if you're not always fighting for them and I think that's something that I've been told before but it was interesting just seeing the history of it like going through that class and being like this small thing this right that we lost in this instance is what triggered this right that we lost next Mm -hmm. and having that being kind of like played out for me through the course of the class and just like seeing that in the city made me reflect on as a Texan the abortion laws that changed this past summer yeah and it it just really all this i that came back to my mind the whole time I was there being like, Wow, like, this is slippage, like if you slip one mm-hmm. thing, the next thing's just easier to easier to you know be taken away as well, yeah, and so I think that's something that i I came out of it with is just wanting to remind people and say like it's not just this far away place that just lost its democratic institutions. it was some a place with a like robust legal system and that is very similar to our own Mm -hmm. um, that is experiencing some of the same problems that we are and we're we're experiencing the same problems as they are Mm -hmm. and um, just to not take your free voice for granted.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, it's so scary to think about like, I feel like nowadays when you are voting for someone for a public office and especially a big public office in the States, you have to say... Not just are they going to get me what I want and, like, fight for the things that I want in my political world, but are they going to protect my right to democracy? Exactly. You know? I mean, Yeah, it's, it's really scary. Terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Hong <laughs> Kong made that a lot more real. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, okay. Well, we're almost out of time. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming on the show. I've loved being able to talk about these things. I could talk about them for days. I know. I appreciate you you taking the time to listen and ask me questions. Of course. I have just learned so much from both of these. I feel like a more (laughs) well-rounded, knowledgeable person. A global citizen of the world. Yes. (laughs) A global woman. Oh, my God. Um, Anyway, well, thank you so much, Louisa, for coming on. Thank you, Ward. And thank you to all of those listening. Um, Yeah. See you next time.